Well, some have shied away from teachings about the Holy Spirit because they're too controversial. Uh, some don't like to study that because it just seems like he's a hard guy to figure out. I understand the Father. I understand the, whole, uh, the Son. But when it gets to the Holy Spirit, I just, he's just, I don't understand who he is and what he does. I pray that tonight um, that will be removed and you'll understand that you are, if you're a believer, um, you are v- completely dependent upon him. And he is at work in your life in so many different ways. So tonight we're going to consider the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in both the Old and New Testament, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, His gifts, and a few other items. So let's jump right in with this first one, the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Godhead, and sometimes people struggle to understand who He is. And what we're going to see, though, is that He is God He's a third person of the Trinity, and he has a full expression of personhood. He is not an it. So he's a person. He is not a force. He's not an energy. He's not some impersonal um, thing out there that we interact with. The Holy Spirit is he. He is a person. We don't refer to him as an it. We believe that he, because he is God... Um, has those characteristics. The Holy Spirit is revealed in Scripture in such a way that the only reasonable conclusion that one can make is that He is divine. The writers of Scripture speak of Him as having intelligence, which goes to the idea that He is indeed a person. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, Yes, the deep things of God. So the Holy Spirit is able to process thought. He has intelligence. He is also one that has emotion. He can be grieved and someone to whom you can lie against. And he gives guidance and speaks to people. And the three verses that I'm thinking of is, first of all, Ephesians 4.30, where we see that we can grieve. And Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed For the day of redemption. He is uh, one that can be lied to. We see this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5 verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? If he was um, simply a force or a power, you don't lie against a force or a power. That's You lie against into a person. And then John 16, 1 through 3, we see that he gives guidance and he speaks to people. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So I think I may have got a wrong reference there, but... um, I was looking for another one where actually it talks about he gives guidance and he'll tell you what to say. So maybe keep on reading down through there. But lastly, the Holy Spirit is one who has a will to exercise. Again, something that is very connected with a person. Very connected with a person. 
Um, you have a will. You exercise it all of the time. Acts 16.6, we read, Now when we had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So we see his will there. He's stopping something from taking place. So the cults will say of the Lord that he is an it, that he's a force, that he's a power, but not that he is a person. And the reason why this is significant is because if he is God, he must be a person. And that is exactly the way Scripture reveals him. J.I. Packard says of his personhood, The Spirit then is he, not it, and he must be obeyed, loved, and adored along with the Father and Son. Things that you would do to a person. So the Holy Spirit is a person, but the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And this is established all throughout Scripture. First, the Holy Spirit is called God. Um, made reference to that in that Acts passage. This is where we're going to get it from Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, Peter rebukes Ananias for saying, Why have you lied to the Spirit? But then in chapter 4, he says, You have, not, uh, you have lied, not to me, but you've lied to God. Acts chapter 5, verse 4. So, you're lying, but your lie is against God. A clear statement that the Holy Spirit is God. Again, J.I. Packard writes, and the quote is up there for you, The divinity of the Spirit appears in the declaration that the lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Acts 5, 3, and 4. From the linking of the Spirit with the Father and the Son in benedictions. So here's a couple of other places you can pursue. Look at how he, when the comes to the closing, it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Or even in baptism, he says, and in the formula of baptism, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So he is included in the same conversation with the other two members of the Trinity. When Jesus was announcing his soon departure, he promised that he would send a helper who would be another. And that's, the word another is the, the Greek word alos, which would be like A-L-L-O-S if you were to transliterate it. And um, this is in John 14, 16. He says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Well, the word another, alos, is significant because there's two words that you can use for another. One is alos and the other is hetros which is similar kind of a word, but it's not exactly the same. Alos means another of the same kind, whereas hetros will denote another of a different kind. I think maybe one of the easiest ways to explain it, as I've done in the past, is you have, we have chairs that are all exactly the same in here. So if I was to say, go get another chair... Um, and I just said that in English, you could go and maybe the first chair you see is you pick it up. You bring one of the stools um, in here and I could say, no, not that chair. Get another chair like one of these. That is the word for another, another one like this of the same kind. So who is Jesus? What kind of, of individual is Jesus? Well, he is divine. So when he says, I'm going to give you another helper, he's saying another of the same kind. Not of a different sort, but of the same exact kind. So a comforter of the same kind is in addition uh, to himself and not 
one of a different kind. So the parakletos, which is a word for helper, it's one of the names given to the Holy Spirit, the parakletos that Jesus promised to send was not just any parakletos or helper, but one who shared the very same essence as Jesus and the Father. It's divinity that we're talking about. So a third truth that helps us to understand the deity of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit possesses the same attributes or qualities of God. Charles Riley, uh, Ryrie writes, Omniscience, that is having full knowledge, omnipresence, being everywhere, and omnipotence, all power, by virtue of his work in creation. And the references you see up there, so those Isaiah 40, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 2, 12, these are ones where the Spirit has um, omniscience attributed to him. Uh, omnipresence, that he's everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7, where may, can I flee from your spirit? Omnipotence in creation is found in Job 33, verse 4, and Psalm 104, verse 30. So the scripture clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person and he is fully God. So why wouldn't we want to experience all that he has to bring to us? Moving into the next section, we want to talk about um, how the Holy Spirit was moving and working in the Old Testament, the New Testament, therefore in our day. And we want to begin by looking at the Old Testament. And we've already made this kind of indirectly as we consider the attributes of, of the Holy Spirit, that he's omnipotent, but he's creator. Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit as one who creates. In Genesis 1-2, as Moses was writing, he spoke of how the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water. So in the creation moment, he is present. Again, Isaiah 42, Job 33, they attribute creation to the Spirit of God. But do you remember what we studied last week about Jesus? That everything that is made was made by him. There isn't anything that, hasn't been, that, that is made that hasn't been made by him. And yet we find another statement that it's the Spirit who is at work in creation. How do we reconcile that? There's nothing to reconcile. We worship one God who's manifested himself in three persons. So it should not be surprising to us to find out that they are doing the same work. So in the Old Testament, he is revealed as creator. But he's also one that is bringing revelation. He is the one that brought revelation in the Old Testament. He is one that is bringing revelation in the New Testament. We looked at this verse a couple of times. But 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's speaking, and he's looking back at the scriptures of the Old Testament, and he's saying, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They are the ones. Uh, it is him that is giving them that inspiration. I don't think you can find any clearer statement about the revelatory ministry of the Holy Spirit than 2 Peter 1.21. It's, he's the one that is at work. Prophets understood as they ministered that it was the Holy Spirit who was leading them along in their ministry. You might want to try looking at 2 Samuel 23.2 or Micah 3.8. 2 Samuel 23.2 
or Micah 3.8. You'll have to look those up on your own. Um, but there you'll see that they understood that they were under the unction and the ministry of the Spirit. Truth in the Old Testament came by men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit to declare God's revelation. The same is true in the New Testament. And Jesus understood this point very clearly. When Jesus made uh, reference to the Spirit in Matthew 22, verses 43 through 44, he says, He said to them, How then does David, Old Testament, writer of Scripture, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is like, Hey, it's the Holy Spirit that was speaking to David as he wrote Scripture down. So he's the one that brings us the revelation. It's the Spirit's work in relation to people, not just into um, uh, you know, the Word. And I don't think this point is, yeah, it is up there. The Spirit's work in relation to people. How was he working? How was he moving in the Old Testament? Now the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, New Testament, marked a new day for the how, how the Holy Spirit would minister to men. And um, this is anticipated. It's clearly spoken of that it's going to be distinct. John 16, verses 7 and 8 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So Jesus is, is, is prophesying of the ministry that the Holy Spirit will have under the new covenant. Acts 2, 15 through 18, a really clear statement, quoting from the prophet Joel. And, the, and Joel is looking forward when he writes of what the Holy Spirit will bring in the New Testament. And so you can look at that passage. We're probably going to end up there again. But he says that the, when the, in the last days, God's going to pour out the Spirit on all flesh. They're going to prophesy. They're going to have visions. There's going to be dreams. And I'm going to do this on your sons and your daughters, old men, young men. Old, young ladies, older ladies. Not old ladies, you say older ladies. Um, so th that's what is, is being prophesied. Something different is going to happen. So that being the case, that God will work in a different way through His Holy Spirit, how was He working in the past? And there's quite a few ways. I mean, they're all over Scripture. Um, he was given certain men uh, tasks, skills for the various jobs. Some of them, uh, the, the way in which he was enabling them, kind of, a, you know, not even really all to our reading. It wouldn't even strike us as like, wow. So there's um, a man by the name of, uh, yeah, I'm just going to skip his name. I can't say it. Um, um, and he was the, that guy. He was the one that was um, working on the temple, uh, the tabernacle. And Exodus 31, 3 through 5, it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in the manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So he wasn't just a talented craftsman. He was one that had the Spirit of God come upon him as he 
was fashioning and designing because God wanted it to look a certain way. And so he was given that enabling. In a similar manner, Zerubbabel was, a gifted, was gifted as he sought to reconstruct the temple. In Zechariah 4.6 it says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Zerubbabel, it's by my spirit that you're going to reconstruct the temple. And then you can find other examples of men like Samson or King Saul who had the Spirit of God come upon him. In Judges 14, 19, speaking of Samson, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And then we know the great works that he did. It's interesting, and we don't know, but I, I find it interesting that every time we see a depiction of Samson, he is always some muscle-bound guy. Maybe. But maybe not. Maybe he was not a muscle-bound guy. Maybe he was as thin as a rail. And that's the way I like to think about it. He's just as thin as a rail. Nobody would expect it. And when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, there was this great strength and this great power. I don't know. You can muscle-bound or not. It doesn't much matter. But it wasn't his muscles that made him strong, was it? It was the Spirit of the Lord that came upon him. Even King Saul... 1 Samuel 10.10, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. So we see that he's not just helping men build things. He is also giving them strength. He's also giving them the ability to speak a word of prophecy. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20, we see that the Holy Spirit is also there to give instruction. And so Nehemiah um, speaks, and he's looking back. He says, You also gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for the thirst. So he's referring to the time in which, in the wilderness wanderings, they were getting instruction. And as we've gone through that on Sunday mornings, we can see it so clearly how the Holy Spirit was giving them guidance. So although the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is more fully developed, it would be wrong to think that he wasn't at work and moving in the Old Testament. That would be an incorrect idea. But it's going to be greater in the New Testament, which brings us to that very point. How is the Holy Spirit working in our day? How did he work in the New Testament? As significant as it was in the Old Testament, it's more fully realized in the New Testament. And so the ways we're going to break down this section, and we're going to spend a lot of time in this section, um, it applies to us. And that is that the Holy Spirit was at work in the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit was inspiring Scripture, which we've talked about. I'm probably going to just make a passing reference there. He indwells us. He is sealing us, he is baptizing us, and he is gifting us. All incredibly significant. This isn't to mention the guidance and the revelation he uh, brings to us. Not for more scripture, but just insight as we would read. So um, let's look at these. In relation to Christ, um, we see 
the role of the Holy Spirit as being significant even at his conception. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she became pregnant with Jesus. So he was there uh, present at that moment. Um, when Jesus began his public ministry, when he was being baptized, Matthew chapter 3, um, we see that the Holy Spirit came upon him. So in his conception, and the beginning of his ministry, um, he had this. And Jesus makes reference to this again. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, not just somebody describing the Holy Spirit coming upon him, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus was experiencing the power of the Spirit upon his life. And Jesus said of the enabling of the Holy Spirit that um, he experienced it in its full measure. John chapter 3, verses 34 and 35, it says, For he whom God has sent, that would be Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So again, Jesus is saying, I minister by the Holy Spirit and the Father has given full measure of that ministry of the Spirit. When Jesus um, was ministering, he spoke, or his life provided an example of the need for the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so this this is something that we are going to see is needed. We need what Jesus had. He was empowered by the Spirit, and we also are going to, to need this. So John's speaking, and he's saying, I baptize you with water, but when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, at work in the New Testament, in the ministry, in the life of Jesus Christ, in his conception, but he's also there bringing revelation and inspiration. We've already talked a little bit about that with the Old Testament. We did a whole uh, night on the ministry of the Spirit in giving us the Scripture. Um, so again, there's 2 Peter 1.21. Um, I'm not going to read it again. You should almost have it memorized by now. But they were moved by the Holy Spirit as they received the, uh, uh, the Word of God. Um, but Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. And that's found in John 16, verse 13. He says, However, When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So Jesus looks forward to the coming of that parakletos, that when he says, another like me, he's going to come. And one of the things he's going to do, he's going to bring you into truth. John says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. The Holy Spirit himself teaches you. So this is something that when we open the scriptures, we're looking for the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. Not to come up with a private interpretation, because there is no private interpretation. 
the church interprets the scripture collectively. And so the statement of, well, to me, it means this, doesn't mean much. Okay, because you're not you're not given the grounds to have a private interpretation. All right. You don't you're not given that latitude. I'm not given that latitude. That's why it is important for us to know what the generations have said that have gone before us and to make sure that our interpretation is not by itself. But the Holy Spirit will lead us into that same interpretation. So revelation, inspiration, ministry in the life of Jesus but also, He indwells us. And this is one of the greatest blessings of salvation, is, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all believers. All believers. Not some believers. Not a special um, order of believers. All believers. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? He indwells you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So there's a, a takeaway from being indwelt by the Spirit, and that is we do what He would lead us to do. But listen, if the Corinthians, of all people, if the Corinthians are filled, or excuse me, indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord, then this is true for all people. They were, if, if they were a special class of believers, they are a special class of messed up believers, And yet they had the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit because they became the dwelling or the temple of the Holy Spirit. The new ministry of the Holy Spirit is distinctly different than the previous means of ministering in the Old Testament because they did not experience that indwelling. We read of two occasions of Samson and King Saul who had the Spirit come upon them for a specific moment. But the believer today is indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord at all times. At all times. This is one of those amazing truths of Scripture. John 14, 17 says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you, and what's that last phrase? And will be in you. Something is going to happen. The Spirit of God is at work right now. He's speaking to His disciples. He's bringing you to this conclusion of who I am. But a day is coming when He is going to indwell you. So, conclusion. The indwelling of the Spirit is synonymous with salvation. And every believer receives this abiding presence of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Just leave that up there for a moment. I want you to see that because in a moment when we start talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to make some comments that there is subsequent works of the Spirit after salvation. So for those of you that find that statement troubling, I want you to see that right there. Okay, We're not saying that there is a class of believers or there's going to be a further degree of salvation When a person is saved, any person, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is synonymous as being saved and they, me, you, have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit at that moment. So hang on to that thought. Another work of the Spirit is that He seals us. He seals us. And there's three New Testament passages, at least, 
that um, speak of this work of the Spirit. Um, and he says that we've been sealed in such a way that we have been made a part of the family of God. It speaks of the assurance of our place in the kingdom of God. So first passage is 2 Corinthians 1.22. He says, Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we've been sealed with this, by God with His Spirit, and it's in our heart, to give us an assurance of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 It says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, for the unbeliever, when you speak of knowing that you have salvation and knowing that you're going to go to heaven, um, they kind of wonder at that. And sometimes they just think that this is like arrogance on our part. What do you mean? I mean, the Spirit of God indwells you and you're sealed. They, because they don't have that assurance. You know this, not just because you heard that verse, but because the Spirit of God is doing this work in your life as well bringing you to this conclusion that you are His and giving you an assurance of salvation. So if we go back to the opening of our study, for those who say, I just don't like to deal much with that Holy Spirit guy. Well, how about this part of the Holy Spirit guy? Do you like being indwelt by the Spirit of God? Do you like having Him seal you and giving you assurance of salvation? Yes. I mean, these are great things. One more verse, Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed until that day when you are going to be in the presence of the Lord. So, um, in the Moody Handbook of Theology, Paul Enns writes, and he says, In the Old Testament times, a seal was used in various ways. A seal authenticated a document, a marriage contract. It authenticated a transfer of power from one ruler to another. So being sealed with the Holy Spirit would have resonated in the ears of all those who heard it as like, this is an official thing that has taken place. This is not just uh, some meaningless metaphor. It was something that was experienced every day in the business world. It's, it's, it was a signed document. And you are that one that has been signed by the Holy Spirit as a promise that you might have assurance that you are saved. Another author, Ben Witherington III, writes, It is the first installment and thus the surety that God plans to complete His work of salvation in the believer. How do I know I'm going to get to heaven? How do I know God's going to you know, um, complete the work? Because He's giving you a promise. He has sealed you so that you can know that He is fully committed to bringing you to that day of redemption. Well, I don't know if I can do it. Good thing is, it's God who's doing that work. Now, you've got to be a willing participant, okay? But it is His work. So that is the um, indwelling of the Spirit. That is the Spirit sealing us. And now, come to that pipe, this part that is probably the next two points are going to be the most controversial. I don't think they are. But it is within 
um, Bible-believing Christians, and that is the idea of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That thing that John prophesied, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that it's John's prophecy that we want to consider here. And so people have difference of opinions um, when it comes to this. But it's clear that the early church went forth in great power doing the work of evangelism and doing ministry. And they did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what terms should we use? And this becomes, I think, a, a, a significant part of the disagreement that we have. I, I'm just going to put forth um, this as my own opinion. One of the reasons why I think there is so much um, debate around this is because we don't understand that multiple terms are used for the same exact experience. So when we talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that is not the only way the event is described or or is termed. And so you will find that um, we have to pay attention to a variety of of those terms. And we'll get to those in just a moment. But here at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, we believe that in the same manner, an experience of the Holy Spirit that was available to the early church, that is still available to the believer today. What does that mean? That Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 19 were not just one-off events for just that generation. I believe that it was, And I believe that God was doing something quite significant in that moment. But I would not limit it, because Scripture doesn't limit it, to having an impact only in that generation. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience that was prophesied by Joel. Peter quotes this in his sermon there on the day of Pentecost. John the Baptist, Mark chapter 1, verse 8, we already read that. And Jesus, all of them refer to this. Acts 1.8 is a reference to Jesus saying that you're going to be baptized. So in seeking to define this experience, um, let's look at some of these terms. Interchangeable terms. So here's something that will go up on the board for you. So for instance, what am I referring about? Luke references this experience this overflow, this coming upon experience of the the Holy Spirit, he refers to it as the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. It is also referred to as the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38. It is referred to as the promise of the Father in Acts 1.4 and Acts 2.39. It's also referred to as being filled with the Spirit in Acts 2.24 and many other places. It's termed as receiving the Spirit in Acts 8.17. And it also is referred to in Acts 8.16 and Acts 10.44 as the Spirit falling upon an individual. So all of those descriptors, all of those terms are referring to the same experience. The multifaceted understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit has to be, if you just zero in on just the phrase, the baptism with the Holy Spirit and trying to find it only that way, you, you won't, you're going to miss it. 
And don't take my word for it. I gave you those verses. You go home and you look them up. The context will easily prove my point. That it is all referring to the same exact experience. And I encourage you to explore this a little further. But I believe any attempt to define this experience and doesn't consider all of these descriptors is going to have an incomplete understanding. So what am I trying, what's, a, what's the kind of a conclusion of that point it would be this, is we say, oh, well, you know, we believe that a person is only baptized with the Holy Spirit once. Okay, then why do we find throughout the book of Acts that they're continually filled, which is a synonymous term with the baptism with the Spirit? You've got to deal with that. You may, you may have a different conclusion than I do, but you've got a problem. Because you have believers that are being repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. So your theological position is challenged by the Word of God. Um, and you have, to, you have to work this out. Um, I think there are three elements of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that are important to note in Scripture. And the first element of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is it is the work of bringing believers into the body of Christ. And um, you can see the different references there. I'm going to let you go ahead and and pick those up and and read those. The second element is that it is an event that gives power for service. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Luke 24, 49. You know, it talks about you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And lastly, which I think is often overlooked, but it's clear in Scripture, is that it is an identifiable experience that God gave believers to provide undeniable evidence of acceptance by God. And we'll look at each of these points here in just a moment. So let me tell you what I don't mean as we walk a little further into this. We don't dispute that Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8. So Acts 2 is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Jews there in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 is the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Samaritans in Samaria. Um, And Acts chapter 10 is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for the first time upon Gentiles. And so Acts 2, chapter 8, and chapter 10 are very significant because they're each these different um, groups of people are receiving. And so what the Lord is saying is, it's for all people. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. You Jews, Acts 2, the Samaritans, Acts 8, and all Gentiles. So um, I don't, in saying that there's a second work or multiple works of the Spirit empowering, I am not saying and ignoring the fact that there was something significant that was happening. In those moments, especially in Acts chapter 10. And the weight of Scripture, the quantity of Scripture, Acts 10 and 11, all tied up in this same uh, account of the house of Cornelius receiving the Holy Spirit, was the conclusion as well if they got it, then I guess uh, the Holy Spirit, like we got it, then I guess God has accepted the Gentiles. It's, it, there's a significant theological point. I understand that, I don't dispute that. Um, I think it is, it is clear. But to say then, well, those are no longer passages that we can look to that would have any significance to us is a self-imposed idea. 
You don't find that in the text. You find that in schools of theological thought. So just kind of just because this is the point. I'm making that point because this is the challenge that comes against the perspective I'm putting out. Well, the second element is that it is power for service. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you got it. You know it. You understand it. You see that this was the case. Again, Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit where they would receive power for ministry. In Acts chapter 2, the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But then in Acts chapter 4, Luke tells the reader that the believers, most of whom were the same exact people in Acts chapter 2, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit again. So if you have the theological position that you can only have one experience with the baptism with the Holy Spirit, again, say, well, it's the baptism. In Acts 4, it is being filled with the Spirit. Well, time out. Remember, these terms are synonymous. Read through all of Acts chapter 2 before you make that point. Because you're going to find out in Acts chapter 2 that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being filled with the Spirit, which is the same thing as the promise of the Father. So when you get to Acts chapter 4 and it says, uh, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, he's being filled with the Spirit. He's already been filled, but he's going to receive it again. Um, Wayne Grudem, going back one slide for those guys up there that are doing a fantastic job trying to keep up, um, He states, it is appropriate to understand filling with the Holy Spirit not as a one-time event, but as an event that can occur over and over again in a Christian life. If you dispute that, I encourage you to go to um, blueletterbible.org and do a word search on filled in spirit and narrow it down to the book of Acts. And you're going to see that repeatedly this is the case. And I'm going to give you another one. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Not only do they have the same experience, they have the same, it, the filling of the Spirit has the same impact as it did in Acts chapter 2. So if it's a different experience, then why is it accomplishing the same exact work? Acts chapter 7, verse 55, 55, he says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 9, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. He's already had that experience when he was converted. Acts 13, 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, if they're disciples and you only have one feeling at the time of salvation, why are they having it again? The point is so clear. To me, and I hope you feel the same way after going through all this, like, why is this even a a, a point of debate? You got me. I don't know. I I don't understand it. I I guess I do. And and for this point, I appreciate those that take this stance. They see the chaos that often exists in the church around the Holy Spirit, and the things that are assigned to him that are clearly unbiblical, and they want nothing to do with it. And so, trying to distance themselves from that abuse, they 
come up with these statements that I just believe Scripture does not support. So, the empowerment element of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that happened to believers repeatedly after their salvation. So, let's get real practical. You're saved. The Spirit of God indwells you. You've been brought into the body of Christ. You've been baptized into the body of Christ. I'm going to send you over to uh, Ukraine to preach the gospel on the front lines. Do you want to be prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit again? I bet you do. I don't care what your theology is. You're going to pray for that. And so we, there, there is this repeated experience. The concern that comes in is, well, then um, was a person not fully saved? Is that why they got to be filled again? No, they were not saying that at all. They have, when you were sealed with the Spirit, it was a once for all abiding presence of God. This is a ministry that gets us ready, of the, the Holy Spirit gets us ready to go and proclaim the gospel and do the work of ministry. The third element of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the unmistakable encounter a believer had with God. An often looked point, but very clear in Scripture. If you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's unmistakable that that has taken place. In Acts chapter 11, verses 16 through 18, this is what we read. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, and how he said, John indeed baptized with the Holy Spirit, but you shall be baptized with the... um, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is when the Gentiles um, get saved and they are speaking tongues like Acts chapter 2. So this is Peter speaking about this. Verse 17, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Pretty significant, right? Well, Gentiles have repentance to life. That's a big deal. How do they know that? How do they know that Gentiles have been granted repentance to life? Because they experienced the same exact thing as what the 120 experienced in Acts chapter 2. Therefore, it is an identifiable experience that they had in Acts 2 and happened in Acts chapter 10, being recounted here in Acts chapter 11. Again, we can find another place where um, it's clear that this experience is identifiable. In Acts chapter 19, verse 2, Paul speaking to some disciples of John, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, if you're going to ask that question, you must have had an, must believe that there was an experience that could be had or not had to answer that question. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he can't simply be speaking about salvation. Because I think there's a lot of us who have been saved. And at the moment that we got saved, the, the heavens did not open. There was not some miraculous thing taking place. At six years old, when I made a public profession of Christ at First Baptist Church, Palm Springs, California, at the Jimmy Nettles Revival, I prayed the prayer, I believed it, and that was my experience. 
How many of you had a similar experience? I mean, there's nothing really accompanying. But I can tell you, after all those years, you know, 49 years later, that something really happened to me. So if somebody would have challenged me and said, you know, did you, get, did you receive the Holy Spirit? I'm like, well, I, 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 in faith I believe so, but I, cannot, I can't point to anything. I can't point to, you know, what happened there in Acts chapter 10. And so Paul asked that question. But this isn't the only place. So you got two places there. There's another place that gets us outside of the book of Acts, and it's Galatians 3, 2. And Paul says this, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of the faith? So tell me about your experience. So this is an indication that the, this baptism with the Holy Spirit is an observable experience. Let me read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, in effect, Paul was saying to the Galatians, you receive the Holy Spirit and you know that. Now, did you receive the Holy Spirit as a result of your works of righteousness, works under the law, or by the hearing of faith? They knew that they had received the Spirit. Otherwise, Paul's question was pointless. They knew that they got it apart from any work that they did. So the third element of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that it is an experience you can speak of and you, something that you can identify. Yes, this happened to me. At its essence, being part of the body of Christ, um, actually, I'm just going to skip that. I don't, want to, I don't have time to develop that point. Um, Acts 2 38 through 39 says, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this problem is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the question here is, is this for us today? Well, we're a far off people, aren't we? So yes, we can experience this. It's not just for Jews in Acts 2 or Samaritans in Acts 8 or Gentiles in Acts 10, or disciples of John in Acts 19. Peter says it's for everyone. And this is what Joel said, that, he would, that God will pour out His Spirit when? When is God going to pour out His Spirit? In the last days. So this is for us. And so we can look to the you know, experience of Scripture, which is the only way to establish a doctrinal point. But... There are plenty of believers outside of Scripture that have experienced an identifiable encounter with the Spirit of God after salvation. Again, I'm going to read a lengthy quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, Furthermore, you will find that this is something to which the saints of centuries have testified. Everybody remembers the story of how this happened to John Wesley in Aldersgate Street in London in 1738. But many people have never heard of it as it happened in a still more striking manner to George Whitfield before that. We've heard of it in the case of Moody walking down the street in New York City one afternoon when suddenly he became aware of the glory of God in such an overwhelming manner that he felt that even his strong body was at the point of being crushed and he held up his hands and asked God to stop. It is true of Finney 
and Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd. It is something to which many ordinary Christians, whose names we do not know, have testified and for which they have thanked God. This is the sense of the glory of God, the reality of the Lord, this love towards Him, this indescribable experience of these things. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is something that is alive and well and going on to this very day. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need the promise of the Father. We all need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and walk in this power and to be able to identify of that work. Do you know of the Spirit of God at work and moving your life when you minister? And if it's not, then you need to ask the Lord. He's promised to give. The, the next point that I want to come to is how the Spirit gifts the church. Another important work of the ministry. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us spiritual gifts that we might be a blessing to everybody. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability for service. These gifts, the Greek word charisma, charismata, must be functioning in the church if she's going to operate as she's been designed. This is how God works through his church, is through the spiritual gifts he has given. It's his, it's his toolbox, and so we need these. And the gifts of the Spirit are distinct from our natural talents. You might have the ability to, um, you know, speak, but that doesn't mean you have the gift of teaching. But if you have the gift of teaching and, and the Lord couples that together with that natural talent, now this is something that's quite beautiful. And the gifts are spoken of. If you want to read about the gifts, where you can go is 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. That is where the bulk of information is going to come about spiritual gifts. You'll find references in the book of Acts for sure, um, but that's where those subjects are actually explored and talked about. This is how God builds his church using these gifts. One significant discussion with regard to spiritual gifts is whether or not the gifts that were granted to the early church are all still available to the church today. This is a discussion where, again, good brothers and sisters disagree. The two groups can be categorized as cessationist, ceased. Some of these gifts have ceased. They will say they won't say all of them. We'll talk about which ones they do believe or cease. And there are, there are those, like myself, who is a continuous who believes those gifts that were given at the early church are still, in function, still functioning and working to this very day. Those gifts that they would say have ceased are tongues, interpretation of tongues, words of knowledge, miracles, and prophecy. They would say these have ceased. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, Word of knowledge, miracles, and prophecy. And an often cited biblical text to support that position is found in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. And it says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, 
they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And this is the passage that many choose to go to, and it is an ill-fated attempt to interpret this passage to say that these gifts are no longer for today. And that's not just coming from somebody who believes these gifts are coming from, uh, are, are for today. Even those who believe that they are ceased, they lament the fact that their group uses this passage to try and prove that point. Because it actually proves the exact opposite. It isn't saying that these gifts are done. It's saying these gifts that you are emphasizing so much, Corinthians, but you're forgetting about love, those are going to vanish one day. When the perfect has come, when you're in the presence of the Lord, when you know as you are known, they're going to be gone. But guess what you're still going to be doing? You're still going to be loving each other in heaven. You're not going to be speaking in tongues. You're not going to be prophesying, but you're still going to be loving. And so you're, you're, you're diminishing love and you're emphasizing that which one day is going to vanish. But in an indirect way, what he's saying is these gifts will be around until the perfect has come. And so the ill-fated attempt here is to say that the perfect happened when the scriptures were completed. When John in 96 AD finished the book of Revelation, the perfect came because the word of God is perfect and therefore all of these gifts have gone away. Nowhere in the New Testament is that word perfect that we read in 1 Corinthians 13 used to describe the Word of God. I believe the Word of God is perfect, but it is never used. That word is never used. As a matter of fact, and if you want the paper, ask me. I'll, I'll, I'll make it available. Somebody wrote their, um, their thesis on this, who was a cessationist, does not believe these gifts are for today. And he used this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, and zeroed in on the word perfect. And he went through the ages of church history to see if anybody had ever used um, 1 Corinthians 13 as an interpretation to say that the gifts are not for today. And his conclusion to his disappointment was never until the 1900s the first time the church ever used that interpretation. So you have men like David Lowry, great man of God, a cessationist writing the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is among my favorite, saying one suggestion is that the perfection described in the completion of the New Testament, but verse 12 makes that interpretation unlikely. So he acknowledges, although he doesn't believe that. I, I read a lot of commentaries. One said, I, I wish my brothers, fellow cessationists, would stop using this passage. It is a terrible interpretation. So I, I agree. It actually proves the exact opposite. So if you're going to make your case, I wouldn't use that. It's a Johnny-come-lately interpretation. Why not until the 1900s? Because the Azusa Street revival with all kinds of excesses happened. And now people were trying to give explanation for what had happened, and they began to scramble, and they came up with a passage like that. 1 Corinthians 13, 10 through 13, um, tells us that um, this perfect is something else. Let's read. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. So he gives an illustration. 
For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Is that referring to your face in the scriptures? Oh, it's talking about your face before the face of Jesus. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Do you know as you are known because you've got the Bible? You do not. But one day in the presence of the Lord you will. And he says, now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. His whole point in 1 Corinthians 13 is to say, you forgot about love. So a couple of conclusions about this. Um, in the Pillar New Testament commentary, which is, you know, it's a great commentary set. Um, the two guys join together and they write, it says, the context, especially verse 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, makes it abundantly clear, however, that the point at which Paul expects the gifts to pass away or disappear is when we see the Lord face to face and know him fully even as we are fully known. That's the interpretation, which means these gifts are still for today. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology book, writes, The time of the cessation of imperfect gifts like prophecy, they will be made useless or pass away when Christ returns. And this would imply that they will continue to exist and be useful for the church throughout the church age, including today and right up to the day when Christ returns. Again, I've already made reference to it, but Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, um, it speaks about these gifts being available in the last days. Verse 17 says, It shall come to pass in the last days. And then in verse 18 at the end, it says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Which days? In the last days. So this is not something that is easily established in Scripture. There are two passages, Acts 2, 14 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 13, that tell you how long they will last. But it's not just that. Far from teaching that tongues or prophecy will cease, Paul clearly commands that these tongues and prophecies should not be forbidden. He writes that they should not be forbidden. 1 Corinthians 14, 39 and 40 says, Therefore, brethren, I desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. How do you deal with that? Let all things be done decently and in order. And that's the problem. You have two camps. You have the camp that does everything decently and in order, but they don't do all things. And then you have the camp that does all things and it lacks decency and in order. Can we not do all things decently and in order with the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to lead us and guide us? So I have so much I'm not going to be able to get into. Um, I really want to keep going, but um, I've got a lot. No, actually, I don't. Let's, I'll push it a little bit. I'll, I'll summarize it here. Um, the abuse of spiritual gifts should not surprise us. And that the abuse of gifts does not become a basis for dismissing that which God has given Name one thing that is dear and precious to the church of Jesus Christ that has not been abused. This is what you'll often hear. There's been so much abuse with spiritual gifts, we just don't want anything to do with them. Oh, really? How about the gift of giving, Pastor? Do you want that one? I don't hear you saying, has that ever been abused? 
Has giving ever been abused? Ananias and Sapphira, one of the first problems we see, the gift of giving was abused. Did they stop doing that? Because no, they don't do that. Of course not. We do the correct thing. We, we have the word of God to help us and lead us and guide us. We're not left as orphans. We have the spirit of God leading us into all truth. It is easily proven that many who functioned in the so-called sign gifts never contributed to the writing of Scripture. So if the perfect is Scripture, then those gifts should be associated with the writing of Scripture. But think about this. Acts 2, your sons and daughters, were they the writers of Scripture? How about Acts 6, 8? 6, 8? <coughs> Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs. Did he write Scripture? He did not. Acts 10, 46 for they heard them speak with tongues. Who are they? They are the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. Did they write scripture? They did not, but they spoke with tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 1-3, our beloved Corinthian brothers, one of the most messed up churches in all of scriptures, <coughs> used these gifts, and yet they never wrote scripture. Nowhere in the New Testament are these gifts ever associated exclusively with pinning scripture. Nobody, nobody wrote scripture in tongues. That's not the way it happened. So this association is uh, it's a red herring argument to me. We believe that there is a unique class of apostles and prophets whom the Lord used to lay the foundation of the church. And that is not to be duplicated. The church's foundation and the scripture are complete. But there's a general gifting of apostle among missionaries or church planners that still goes on. And I'll just give you the references. You can look them up. But Romans 12, 6, Romans 16, 7, Philippians 2, 25, you'll see all of these who are referred to as apostles. We see people that are walking in the gift of prophecy, leading and guiding the church. Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3. And yet it's not associated with writing scripture. And um, so these are some of the arguments that are used. It's like, well, these were, were used. We have scriptures completed, and the apostles used these gifts of prophecy and such to write scripture. Therefore, it's not for today. But there are so many places in the New Testament where people functioned and worked, and I just gave you the citations for them, in these sign gifts, and they never wrote scripture. So... The general believer experienced it. Yes, there was a specific work. You know, the other ministries of the Holy Spirit, he brings conviction, he teaches believers, leads them into all truth. He gives guidance to us in our life. And um, if you take the time to go look up the notes, you don't have to, but if you do, you can see all the references. So the Holy Spirit, he is a he, a person. The Holy Spirit did great works in the Old Testament. He inspired as they wrote Scripture. He was part of creation work. He is the third person of the Godhead. Today, He indwells us. He seals us. He gifts us. And He gives us power to do the work. And I would say, if you're afraid of the Holy Spirit, why are you afraid of the Holy Spirit? He's called a helper. He's called a comforter. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit is given a bad rap. 
by the abuse and those who are trying to steer clear of the abuse. The Holy Spirit is likened to what kind of bird? A dove. Gentle. Peaceable. Pure. But often the way you see the Holy Spirit being represented in places where it's out of control is he's more like a a hawk swooping down, hitting his prey, and knocking them to the ground. And that is causes people to be afraid. You have nothing to be afraid of, of the Holy Spirit, because He is God. And He has applied the work of Jesus Christ to your life. He indwells you at this very moment. You need not be afraid of Him. Open yourself up. Now, listen, I realize some of you have a different theological position, and that's okay. I love you. You know, we can disagree on this. And if you have questions you want to press me on, um, by all means, come up. I won't be offended by that. We can talk about it because I really do believe it's important that we we understand and we see what the Word of God has to say. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you have not left us, as you said, as orphans, but you sent your Spirit, that we might have that sense of belonging. And being indwelt by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, And having experiences with the Spirit, Lord, you've given us a full salvation. And we are grateful. Lord, I pray that we would walk in a fresh feeling as we walk out here tonight of your Spirit. That we will be bold witnesses. That we will be walking in the gifts that your Spirit gives. And we'll utilize them with the power that your Holy Spirit gives. Lord, we don't want to do it on our own. We know what we are capable of, and that's not going to save anybody, and that's not going to help anybody. So, Lord, we want the gifts and the tools and the person you sent to enable us. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.